All right, that brings us to the Word of God. Matthew 18, please. Open up with me to Matthew 18, uh, verse 15. Well, the disciples have been arguing about who's the greatest. That's what has been going on in Matthew 18. And so uh, just to give you a brief recap of what's going on, Jesus, instead of answering the question right, right away, he, he addresses their issue that was going on in their heart, which was sinful pride, sinful pride. That's what was going on. And in verse three, he says, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he calls them to repent. He calls out their sin. Says there has to be a total change. In verse four, he says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So humility it's how we enter heaven. It's a characteristic that we all share as children of the king. We come to important spirit. And from there, Jesus speaks of his great concern and protection for his children. He's using children as an idiom for believers, just a, a picture of who we all are in Christ. He speaks of concern and protection. And he speaks in verses five and six about the fact that the one who receives believers receives him. How many of you know that those who are loving and kind and receiving to your children receive you same way, right? Same with him. But he also says, conversely, he says in verse six, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So this introduces Jesus concern over the effects of sin upon his sheep, upon us as believers. And so in verses seven through nine, Jesus speaks about who's causing his sheep to stumble. Who, who are the ones that are causing his sheep to stumble? And he goes, he talks about the world. He says, woe to the world. And we can sit there and go, yeah, it's the world's fault. Look at the world sinning and all that stuff. And we can kind of generalize thing. And it's true. The world is under the sway and the influence of the enemy and its influence upon believers does influence us to sin. It plays upon our fallen nature and we give into that and we sin. Jesus says, woe to the world, which means judgment's coming upon the world. Secondly, he goes, but you know, just in case we dismiss it to the, you know, to the ether, it's the world's fault. He goes, and to the individuals who actually cause my sheep to sin. He speaks about the individuals who make the world the way it is. It says, woe to them. And so Jesus calls them to take whatever measures necessary in verses seven through nine to repent. And this is where he talks about using drastic language. And he says, you know, cut off your hand, cut off your, you know, pluck out your eyes, your feet, lose it. It's better to go through life maimed than to enter into eternal hellfire. And I'm paraphrasing there, but man, repent of this, lest you go to hell. So Jesus is serious about sin and the effects of sin on, on us from the world and from those who would directly influence us to do that. And then in verse 10, Jesus gives us a, gives a blanket charge. He says, see that you, you all do not despise one of these little ones. Any of us see that you don't do that. So he's speaking to everybody here. Believers, non-believers don't despise my little sheep. Why? Because the angels are watching. Number two, and he says, because of God, my father, and he's going to go after them. He's going to find them and he's going to bring them back home. He's a faithful shepherd. He gives us that parable of the lost sheep in verses 12 through 14. 
And so we see that Jesus speaking to his disciples about the influence of sin from unbelievers, from the world. And that's kind of to be expected, isn't it? No? Yes. Like, we're living in a fallen, sinful world of whom we all once did all this stuff. And so the Lord calls them out. But what about when believers stumbled believers? What about in-house? What about in the family of God? What happens when we sin against one another, when we stumble one another? Oh, that never happens. So we're good. So let's just move on. No, actually it does. How does Jesus want us to handle it when someone in the church sins against us, when a, a believer sins against us? Now, before we hear what the Lord says on this, think about the conflict you faced if you've been a Christian in any amount of time from other believers. Think about conflict you've been in with other believers. I don't want you to think on it too much. We're not talking about the world. We're talking about those who call themselves Christians. Sadly, to our shame, this happens. Conflict happens in the church. Uh, There's no excuse for it. But guess what? We're still being changed into the image of Christ. We're still being transformed. We're still being worked on. We're still in process. We're still needing the grace of God in our lives. But there's times when we sin against one another. Let me ask you, when that's happened, when someone has sinned against you, how did you handle it? What did you, what was your response? How did you response? Respond. What, what did you do? What were your actions? What were your words? Uh, who did you talk to about it? Who didn't you talk to about it? Why did you handle it that way? Why did you do what you did? You done. And where did you learn that from? Where did you learn that from? These are good questions to ask. What about them? How did they handle it? What did they say? What did they do? Why did they do what they did? Good questions. Well, Jesus gives us as believers three steps. When someone sins against you, three steps, three steps that we as believers are commanded to follow when someone sins against us. Lord, we ask that as we look at this, our hearts be open, that you'd minister to us, that you'd cause us to be not only convicted, but concerned and also changed, Lord, and that we would honor you and glorify you. And there would just be such a great joy and peace at the end of this process, God. So we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what are you supposed to do when someone sins against you? Well, Jesus says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So what is step one, since all of you are taking notes and this affects none of you and you've never been in this situation? Uh, listen, I'm, I, I've been in a, past, a pastoral ministry for a long time. This is super important because I tell you what, over and over again, it's like things we should know as believers, but we don't obey. We don't follow. And I don't know if it's because we're disobedient or it's because we don't know. So write these down. Okay. Write them down. This is important. Number one, what does Jesus say? Step one, what are you supposed to do when someone sins against you? Go to them one-on-one, go to them. 
go to them. Now I think it's important to define first what Jesus is speaking about when he says sin, when someone sins against you, the context of the chapter is stumbling his kids. That's the context. So we're dealing with stumbling. We're talking about sin. So this isn't a personality conflict necessarily a situation where you just have a hard time harmonizing with people because you have different cultures and backgrounds and all that kind of stuff or way of doing things. This isn't because they do something in a way that isn't optimal, something a way that you would rather have it done in a different way. And that kind of grates against you. Anybody had those situations with anybody in the body Christ, or perhaps they're young in the Lord. They don't have all the theology worked out and you've taken it upon yourself to tell them every single thing they're doing wrong. That's not what he's talking about. I mean, who can live under that, right? Listen, I don't believe this is what he's talking about. Being justified and uh, being offended at every little thing. That's, that's called being critical of other people. And I think that's a sin we need to repent of. Um, I've never had that before in my life. So I don't know. You have to share that with me. (laughs) But this is speaking about when someone stumbles you. When someone sins against you and and that is the context of this chapter, it hits you in a way that you can't get past it. Anybody ever had that from a believer? They've said something to you. They've done something in a way and you just try to just, it's just like, it's just, man, you're offended. You're stumbled. You're, you're stuck. Something that was said, something that was done to you or someone else in a way that was sinful and it can't be overlooked. Something that breaks the spirit of unity is another way to measure it. Something that breaks fellowship, that breaks harmony, that makes you ignore one another or say things about people behind their back, all that kind of stuff. When that kind of situation is going on, when someone sins against you, you are called and commanded by the Lord Jesus to go to them. Now, when you find yourself in that situation, guess what you're supposed to do? What's step one? You're to go to them. I keep repeating this, right? And the reason why I keep repeating it is there's two important things. He says, first go to them, right? Two parts of point of point one here, go to them, right? You got to go to them and tell them their faults. Go the, go to them. Point one, point one B, tell them their faults. You go to them. This goes against our pride. What happens when someone sins against you? What do you want to happen in that scenario? You want them to what? Come to you. Why? Because they've offended you, right? And it's only right that they should come to you and make it right. How's that working for you? How's that working for the church? And often when we are sinned against, we also don't go to them. Sometimes we do the opposite of even wanting them to come to us. We avoid them. This is one of the indicators that we know that things are, are going wrong is we avoid one another. We don't make eye contact. We walk, we, we withdraw from fellowship. We stop going to life group. We start ignoring a person. We start ghosting one another, all these types of things that the world does. Jesus commands us to deny that selfish tendency 
and go to them. Why would he say to do that? What example do we ever have of that? (laughs) Well, if you just go back to Genesis to the first sin where Adam and Eve committed it, Genesis three, right? Adam and Eve sinned against God and they hid and they were away and they were covering themselves and all this stuff. And, and who goes and seeks whom the Lord comes walking to them and comes and finds them. And he calls them on their stuff. Isn't that wild? The Lord gives us that example from the beginning. Remember that God comes to us in our sin. We all sheep like have gone astray. We've gone our own path. No one wants to go to the Lord. He, the great shepherd comes to us in these scenarios. He comes to us in our sin while we are yet sinners. He died for us in his love. He died for us. He, he's the one, he's the peacemaker. He's the one who pursues. And so we as Christians, if we have the spirit of humility, If we have Christ in us, the spirit's going to be calling us to go to that person, to go against our pride, to go do what God would do in that situation and seek them out. Why? Because you want them restored. You want them forgiven. You want them to be free of their sin. This is what God wants for us. It's love. Amen. Amen. And so sadly, what we do is we don't go to them. We ignore them. We go, we maybe, uh, you know, you know, try to avoid, we withdraw, whatever we do. But God says, go to them. But what we often do is we go to everyone, but them like we're the CIA, something or something working through back channels to try to get information dispersed to the person we really need to be talking to. You know, I've seen it, you know, we're Christians. We, we kind of, we are in a conflict with someone, but we're going to get counsel from other people. We're going to get counsel. And while there are absolutely times where we do need to get counsel before we go confront someone, because there are sticky situations. Don't get me, don't get me wrong, but that's really not the norm. The norm is when someone sins against you, you don't go to everybody else. You go to them. What does Jesus say? One on one, keep the circle small, personally, person to person, offense to offender. Why? Because this is what Jesus does with us. This is what the Lord does with us. I don't know. How has that happened to you? Have you ever, like with the Lord, have you ever spoken something to someone and you didn't even think anything of it. Maybe you, you send and did, did something in some such a way and you're off doing your thing. And finally you're just kind of alone with your thoughts. And all of a sudden the Lord brings that back to back to your memory of how you said something or what you did comes to you one-on-one says, Hey, you can't let this slide. You can't let this go. This is, this is not right. This is not good. This is sin. And he calls you on it. How many of you in that moment are like, well, whatever. Well, that's the enemy. We can do a lot of spiritualizing. 
the Lord does this one-on-one thing with us. And he calls us to do the same thing with one another, to go and tell them, go to them first of all. And secondly, part two of the first thing is tell them their faults. We're to tell them how they've sinned against us. How many of you have a hard time articulating that? Anyone else? The fog of war, that all that stuff. I think it's hard because it's hard to put into words. You know, you want to couch it, right? All those kind of things you want to say it. You know, and I think it's loving to work through what you're going to say to someone and not just react to put together a, a thoughtful, caring set of words that you're going to say that would have in mind restoration and yet not skirt around the facts, not leave out the heart of the matter, not walk away with a false sense of unity. It's hard. Do the hard work. Put your words down on paper, whatever you've got to do to make it clear and go to them and tell them their faults. Right? How many of you are enjoying this so far? This is what the Lord commands us to do in house. This is how we do things here as believers and with other believers. So it's hard. But Jesus says, if, if, if he listens to you, if she listens to you, if the person who sinned against you offends with you against you and they listen, that implies they hear and they go, yeah, oh my gosh, you're so right. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I did that. I was wrong. Please forgive me. You've won a brother. You've won a sister. It's settled. Right? Now I have to say that forgiveness and trust are two different things. Forgiveness is freely given, but trust, you don't sit there and someone who's abused someone or done something or all that kind of stuff. And you just put them right back in that position that you have to have wisdom in things. So I just want to lay that out there that there isn't this weird weirdness here, but totally forgiveness is what we're called to. And you've won a brother, you've won a sister. Yay. And Jesus will talk a little bit more about these issues later, but that's what we want. We want restoration. We want unity. We want forgiveness because how many of you uh, are married? Yeah. Yeah, I know. And so so you already know where I'm going with this. I'm the master of ignoring problems. Anyone else? Anybody feel overwhelmed? Like you've got a, you're like, it's like Christmas trying to land in LaGuardia of all the problems you've got, you know, and you're just in, in queue. You know, let's deal with all of them, all the things, you know, it's just like, listen, we can't let them stack up. We've got to, we've got to deal with them got to go to one another. We've got to hear, and this is a work that God's doing on me because sometimes you can get just overwhelmed with it. Right. But obedience is what the Lord calls us to. If you love me, obey me. But sad to, sadly, what happens is sometimes you don't win a brother. Sometimes after you go to them and you say something, that's all you'll ever see of them again. It's sad, but it happens. But what do you do when you go to someone and they don't listen to you? You've shared what it is. What, what do you do? Start writing bad things on social media about them. 
So I was hoping you guys would say, no, what do you do? What does Jesus say here? Verse 16. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others, that's other believers along with you, that every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. There's a lot to unpack there, but step two, Jesus calls us to widen the circle. See, we don't widen the circle before it's time. One-on-one. Amen. That's love. One-on-one. If it's dealt with, it's done. Yay. Amen. But if they don't listen, you go get two, two or three. He says there's, so there's two or three in this group going to them. Sometimes a person is entrenched in their sin. They're not going to pull out. They're, they're focused on you. They have something against you or whatever it might be. And there needs to be counsel around them. Their deceitfulness of sin has blinded them. But Galatians 6, 1, and this is the heart of it all. Galatians 6, 1, write that one down. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Right? So not, you know, bringing down the law, but the whole idea is that we come to them and we plead to them and we call out to them and we're gentle and kind to them. We're not wishy-washy about the sin, but we're kind in how we do it. Right? So with the aim of restoration and the spirit of gentleness, the Lord calls us to go to them again, this time with one or two brothers or sisters in the Lord. And the wisdom here is that those brothers and sisters are able to help discern what's going on. Because sometimes the person who's offended is out of line. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes you're just flat off. I've had times when I've been in an elder meeting with Marcus and Fred and, and, and Gary, and I'll be like going off down a rabbit trail. And they're like, Matt, you're just off. This happens like once every five years. It's not very often. <laughs> but I have counsel around me that just kind of says, as I start to bring a, a view of something, they're like, you just, you need to, whoa, where, where? And that's what happens when we bring two or three with us as we go and and they start to see the full picture, the full story. Does that make sense? They can be witnesses of the situation and and they can bring out the truth and say, man, you're, you're kind of, you're off or actually, you know what? It's worse than you think, or you're right on, or this is how we should go about this. Or there needs to be a measured response here. You know, we're going to lose them. If we go this way, we want to encourage them and bring, you know what I'm saying? So we bring two or three witnesses. And he says there that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or more witnesses. Listen, Jesus is serious about stumbling his kids. And What he is concerned with is that those in the church who remain in their sin are going to metastasize their sin in the relationships of the church. And so there's two things he's concerned on the one hand with restoration and repentance. Amen. But he's also done on the other side. He's concerned with purity and protection. Those two things go hand in hand like any good parent. You want to have a, a good household, but you do not want to have something that's going to take down the house. That's the heart. And so the best, uh, the best outcome is obviously forgiveness and restoration. That's what the Lord would have. That's what we're all seeking. Amen. Hopefully. But the second side of this is protection and purification, which within his church, if someone is unwilling to repent, if they're unwilling to turn from their sin and to follow the Lord and to honor him in the process, 
you know, after one person on one person uh, privately, then two or three more in and by the way, what's be, what's being referred to there with the two or more witnesses to gather, you know, to make sure the charge is established. He's referring there in Matthew 18, 16 to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 through 21. Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21. Let me read it for you quickly. It says a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrongdoing in connection with any offense that he has committed. What does that sound familiar? Yeah, that's how we get, we got our law that you have, you can't just, it's hearsay. One person against another is hearsay. You've got to have witnesses to establish the truth. We've pulled this into our law only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so this is ancient Israel and how they dealt with stuff uh, in the day. So listen, you can't just willy nilly go around and say someone did something and then they get executed. You've got to have evidence of what's going on. It's got to be real because there's a lot of false witnesses out there. Jesus experienced that personally where they grabbed two witnesses and paid them off to say what they wanted. Right. And, and by the way, if you keep reading Deuteronomy, it'll, it addresses that as well. But you have to have, and so he's, re, he's referring to this, that in the church, we just can't be throwing around accusations that have to be rooted in truth. It's truly a sin and truly offense. And therefore the two other People are going to help you in that situation. Go to them. If they listen, it's over. If it's not, it's a danger of metastasizing. You've got to bring two others along. You go to them, you plead to them, you call out to them, and hopefully they repent. And if they repent, amen. Praise the Lord. It's over. Amen. Yes. Yes. That's what we want. Now, what happens if the person won't listen to that group? Oh, now it's getting really awkward. Because the circle widens. But listen to the words of the Lord for us. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. It goes from one-on-one one, one on one privately. And if there's no repentance, it goes to two or three. And if there's no repentance... It then goes to the church, which means the leadership starts to get involved and make sure the process is right. And so let me say from my experience, usually people set on their sin or are gone after step one. That's my experience in the church. Usually after step one, you go to them and you talk to them and they're set on it. They're just like, well, you're just an unloving judging church. We'll see you later. Goodbye. And it's like, they're gone. You get ghosted. It's heartbreaking. They leave the fellowship and they go to a different church. Here, the churches were pretty, everybody kind of knew who the churches were, right? But now they leave Christ Community Fellowship and they go to whatever church they want in the valley. And let me say that if I know where you're going, I'm calling that pastor. And I have, and I will, and I have pastors who call me. Why? Because we want to nose in your business? No, because there's danger to the, to the flock of God. There's danger with someone who's going to come in there and start to wreak havoc with the sin, unrepentant sin in their fellowship. And so I've had it where we've communicated with one another about situations. 
And sadly, I've had also pastors I've called that just have totally dismissed me on serious situations. That don't honor these things. And I understand they're, they're coming in from the outside. They don't understand what's going on. And someone calls them up and says something and they don't even know me from anything. But let me say that this is hard stuff. This is hard stuff. What Jesus is asking us to do is going against the flow. It's going against the way the world does stuff. And in Usually what happens is people are going to do anything to avoid the charge of their sin being brought before the church corporately. But if you've been with us for a while, you've know, we've, we've had to do this from time to time and it's not fun. It's the worst. It's awkward. It's embarrassing for everyone. And I'm a fully aware that it can appear when we get to the place where we bring people's sin and give it to the church, that the, that the leadership is being heavy handed. But let me say that you do not want to be in a church that ignores this. You do not want to be in a church or have leadership that will not obey Jesus in this matter, no matter how difficult. Because you have a church where Stuff's just allowed to metastasize. Truth is compromised. And believe me, when it comes to this process, as I've seen with the other guys, man, we are starting to take stock of our own lives. As we start to enter into the place where we as a church have to cast judgment upon a believer. And by the way, we are called to judge one another. We're not called to judge the world. We are called to judge one another. And Peter talks about this because we judge angels or Paul talks about it. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. We're, we're, to, we're to judge one another, not be judgy of one another. But this is where stuff gets dealt with in-house. Paul's talking to the church in Corinth, for example, and they're suing one another. And he's saying, what are you doing taking one another to secular court where you're bringing the name of Jesus but through, but by, you know, in front of all these people? And they're looking at you going like, okay, well, that's the church. Great. It says, why aren't you dealing with it in-house? Why wouldn't you rather be defrauded or wronged rather than bring the name of Christ to reproach? See, there's an in-house process. He says, why aren't you going through this process? And again, this is a refining process for everyone. We all take stock when we get to this point, we have to bring the sin of someone in front of the church. But above all, we must obey Jesus because he's the head of the church. This is his church. Amen? amen. It's hard. And I realize there's a potential for abuse in this stuff and heavy handedness and all that. I see it. But the Lord wants evil purged from his church, just as he did from Israel. He doesn't want it to metastasize. If you keep reading Deuteronomy, that's the whole context of it. Is Unity in the truth, unity in purity, unity in him. Yes, we're long suffering with one another and all these types of things. We bear with one another. We overlook offenses. But when it comes to blatant sin, we have to follow the Lord in this stuff. Because true unity is in the spirit, the spirit of 
truth, the spirit of love. And let me say that to go through this process is to love the Lord by obeying him. And to go through this process is to love you by protecting you and you protecting one another in this as you have a responsibility in this. And by the way, being obedient to this is loving that person in that we are the mechanism through which the Lord is disciplining them. Isn't that wild? He, he can do whatever he wants, but the church has a role in the discipline of our own sheep. I can already tell this is really not going over well. <laughs> so be it. <laughs> and here in step three, you guys are brought in. The church is brought in. How awkward is that? Gosh, please. Just once, one and done. Anybody, please, just step one. Amen. But now you guys are brought into the mix with the purpose of restoration. And this is where the elders and the, and the witnesses, we bring the charge of what has happened before you and say, this is what has gone on. We don't get into unnecessary details. We say the general situation of going on. This is what scripture says. This is the process we've been through. And it can be quite shocking for you. Hopefully, if the process has been followed, no one really knows what's going on. It's been a tight circle, right? But now it's gotten to the point where it's dangerous. And so you need to come in and now you go after that person. You go confront them. You pray for them. You plead with them. You encourage them. You don't undermine the process. Which is there as well. And so you guys enter into a time of prayer and fasting and seeking the Lord and confrontation and all these types of things. Not fun, is it? But we want them to come to the place where they repent and are restored. And this is hard stuff. And oftentimes there's, there's time in between these steps, time in between step one and step two. Sometimes there's time of weeks and days and months between step two and step three and bringing it before you guys, because there needs to be things worked out and processed and people go forward and they go backwards and all this kind of stuff. And so at that point, the charge is brought before the church. It is now in your hands you're to go to the person. And here's the thing. If he listens, if they listen to you and they come and say, I'm so sorry, I've done this horrible thing. Guess what we do? We pray and we rejoice and we forgive and we restore. Amen. 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 That doesn't always happen. Verse 17. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him to be as a Gentile and a tax collector. Put on your Jewish mindset, Gentiles and, and tax collectors. Do they go to synagogue? No, they don't go to synagogue. They're outside. So they're treated as unbelievers and they're also not permitted to fellowship with the body. Those two things they're removed from fellowship. How do I know this? We have examples. First, first Corinthians chapter five, and please write this down. First Corinthians five, one through uh, one through five. By the way, if you want to know what not to do, just read first Corinthians. 
But Paul's kind of heated with the church, not in a sinful way, but in a fatherly way. He's, he's upset with them because they've just got a multiple things going on where they kind of should know. And they, and they're just, they're so influenced by the culture around them. They're having a hard time, but he loves them <laughs> as we all love our kids. Amen. And he's working through them. He's praying with them and he's been long suffering. And so he goes in first Corinthians chapter five, one through five, he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. It's like, there's actually sexual morality being let it, letting it go on in the church and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. So in the church, somebody's sleeping with his mother-in-law. And, and it comes to Paul. Just overt sexual immorality there. But here's the thing, verse two, and you are arrogant, ought not rather you to mourn. And so what was going on is that they were thinking they were being loving by accepting this person. Doesn't that sound like the world? And they just let it go on. And he says, there was a rejoicing. There was a happiness about it. And they were going, Paul goes, shouldn't you rather be mourning over this? And that's what our hearts should be in this process is brokenheartedness. Because you see that they just were taken up by the culture there. They thought somehow being tolerant of this and allowing this was being virtuous and beneficial and Christian. It was not the grace of God does not grace to sin. It's grace from sin. But Paul said, you, you should be weeping over this. And here's what I believe when Jesus means that he says, you should treat them as a Gentile and tax collector. Tax collector. Paul says, let him, him who has done this be removed from among you. That's what he's talking about. They need to be removed from fellowship. And this is what the church does when they don't listen to you. We remove them from fellowship. They're no longer welcome at Christ community fellowship. Treat them like they don't know the Lord because they're acting like they don't know the Lord. They're not responding to God and remove them from among you. Disfellowship them is what needs to happen. And Paul explains that the church needs to do this. Verse three, for though I am absent in the body, I'm present in spiritless. I'm not with you, but I'm there. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm part of you guys. And as, as if I were present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. I'm with you in this judgment. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present. In other words, I'm with you. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. It's the church. It's you guys. It's us. His body that kicks out the cancerous influence from among us, lest we be destroyed, but also for their benefit. What happens is when they're removed, they're handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. There is a protection that happens in the body of Christ. There's a purification that happens when we're among, among one another and we're living purely with one another. There's a beauty and a wonderful fellowship that happens. But when someone is removed from that, they're left out into the world. And the enemy has his way with them. They're given over to sin and they end up in the pig slop like the prodigal son, right? That's what happens. They're left to that. And so 
He says, deliver them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In other words, no longer to the protection of the church. Why? So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Still caring about this person's eternal. We don't want to live them in, leave them in a situation where they're confused about what's going on. We want them to have clarity about salvation. Can't live with one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. We're either in or we're out. We're, we're pure or we're not. We're following the Lord or we're not. We're, we're either, you know, he says, I don't want anybody lukewarm. This is what the Lord calls the church to do with those who will not respond to the discipline the Lord lays out here. They don't turn when people kingdom or when others kingdom or the church kingdom. So we gather together, we agree as a fellowship and they're no longer among us. They're handed over Satan for the destruction of the flesh. It spiritually protects the church and it's for their bet. They're good. They're good. Actually, in the end, Jesus says, and this man was cast out of that church. Now, It's hard, but this is what we need to do. Back to Matthew verse 18, 18 verse 18. He says right on the heels of that. And truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Who's he talking to? And what's the context? Y'all in the context of church discipline, when you cast that person out, when you treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, when you've gone through this process of trying to lovingly restore someone and they do not respond and they're stuck in their sin and they will not turn. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose in heaven shall be loosed in heaven, uh, loosed in heaven, bind on earth. Sorry, you got the idea. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of if, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven for they were for uh, where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among them. The context of this whole thing is church discipline. Listen, when we agree in the name of the Lord, we gather together. It is going to be done in heaven. That is if we're following him and we're in connection with him. Amen. According to his will. So I know this is long. We're almost done. Step one, go to them, tell them their faults. Step two, go grab someone else. Step three, gets brought to the church. Step four, if necessary, they're removed from fellowship. And that's hard. I'll leave you with this though. Second Corinthians two, five through 11. Second Corinthians two, five through 11. First Corinthians was written. Then another letter. Then 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, a letter back to the church. Some time had been passed since this guy was kicked out. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, it says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too, severe, too severely to all, all, to all of you. Listen, what you guys went through, it was painful for all of you. It was painful for all of you to, to obey the Lord in this and to remove this person from fellowship for such a one verse six, this punishment by the majority is enough. Well, what's happening here? Why is it enough? So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. What happened to this guy? The enemy had his way with him. He was in the sloth and the spirit worked in his heart and he looked up 
and said, God, what am I doing? What am I doing? And he runs back to the church because that's where the goodness was. The sweetness was the people were loving and reaching out to him. And this church is just going, yeah, you can't come back. <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> they're trying to, they're learning. And Paul says, no, 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 no. <laughs> Bring them in. They're forgiven. Lest their heart become overwhelmed. Bring them in. Restoration. What the Lord has done with us. Amen. That's the heart. And then from here next week, Peter goes, well, how many times should I forgive someone? Seven times? Seven times 70, 490 times. I'm counting everybody. That's to be another principle by which we have. We're all in humility, humility, and we all have the spirit of forgiveness within us, within us. We keep forgiving. We keep forgiving. Why is that? What model of that do we have? Yeah. Lord, we have a lot to learn. You know better. You know better. You know what our hearts need. And Lord, as this next week, it's one thing to go confront someone and for them to turn. But then what happens in our heart is that we have to forgive them. Lord, teach us to forgive. And so, Lord, as we come to your word next week, we ask you to prepare our hearts for that. God, we ask that you would not allow any disunity in this fellowship. Lord, we all have sinned and fallen short and we're all in process, but that's not an excuse, Lord, for what you've called us to where we have sinned against one another. Lord, sensitize our hearts towards one another. Let's go to step one and be done. We pray that the enemy would not have a foothold here. That your name would be glorified. And that your name would just be sweet among us as we have true fellowship and true unity, true koinonia. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Lord bless you all. Have a wonderful week in the Lord.